Before I moved to Brooklyn three and a half years ago, I served as an associate pastor for a, for a church in the suburbs. And my main responsibility at that church was to serve as to college students, to serve as the pastor to the college students in our church. And one every Monday night, we would have a big college gathering with several hundred college students. And I remember one week, one Monday night, I stood up. We had all these college students in the room, and I stood up. And I preached a message on God's grace toward them. And I don't know if you guys remember what it was like in college if you went or if you just know what life of a college student is like. But in a room that's full of college students, you can imagine the mistakes, the regrets, the shame that is being carried in a room like that. And I remember standing before these students and preaching message after message after message, but this night particularly preaching a message of grace and telling them that no matter what they've done, no matter what it is that they've done, and no matter what they've yet to do, that God forgives and that God loves them and that God's acceptance of them is not based on what they do or don't do or will or won't do, but what Jesus has done. And I quoted Tim Keller who says that there is nothing that you could do that will make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do that will make God love you less. That's what I told these college students. God already loves you in Christ, no matter your past, no matter your future. Well, a few days later, a kind older woman in our church, a senior adult lady who I love, godly woman, but still she came to me and she said, Will... I heard about the sermon you preached earlier this week. She says, Will, you need to be really careful. Because if you preach like that, if you preach the grace of God like that, those students will think that they can live however they want. Now, the question I want us to consider today is, if we are saved by grace, then what are the commands of Jesus for? Or if we are saved by grace, what then is the purpose of God's law and God's commands? Or perhaps the question that this older woman was asking me, if we are saved by God's grace alone, can we go on living however we choose? And if you remember last week's sermon, you know that this today's sermon will be titled How to Read the Bible Like Jesus, Part 2, parentheses, understanding God's commands. This is a sequel to last week. But last week, Jesus addressed an accusation that some of the religious leaders were making about him and his teaching. They were accusing him of trying to abolish and to throw out or minimize the importance of the scriptures, the importance of the law. And so Jesus, at this phase in his ministry, he's going around telling prostitutes and lepers and drunkards and tax collectors, and all these people that they could, that all these people that have broken the laws of Moses, he's telling them that they could enter the kingdom of heaven if only they have faith in him. And the religious leaders, they were concerned. They said, Look, Jesus, if you say that these people are accepted by God, these people who've broken the laws of Moses, if you tell them that they are accepted by God and people start hearing that you're hanging out with these people and you're telling them that they can be accepted into God's kingdom, it will be anarchy. If you tell people that they are saved by grace, Jesus, people will think they can live however they want. 
And so the religious leaders were frustrated because they loved the scriptures, they loved the law, and that what they didn't want more than anything was for people to think that the law wasn't important. But today, Jesus is going to help us understand the relationship between his grace and his commands. The relationship between the love of Jesus and the commands of Jesus. And last week, what we saw was how Jesus relates to the scriptures. But this week, Jesus is going to tell us how we, as his followers, should relate to the scriptures. And I'm convinced that Jesus does not want us to choose between law and grace. What he wants for us is to understand the law through the lens of his grace. And so Jesus turns to his disciples in this moment as he's being accused of abolishing the law. And this is what he says. There's religious leaders around. His disciples are around. And this is what he says. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Jesus is quoting the Ten Commandments here. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here's what I want you to see this morning, that there are two errors that people often make when reading the Bible. Particularly, there are two errors that people often make when trying to understand the relationship between the law of God and the grace of God, the love of Jesus and the commands of Jesus. The first error is the error that the religious leaders of Jesus' day made, and that is that they believed that by strict obedience to the law, they could please God and therefore gain God's approval. So the first error is I can earn God's acceptance through obedience to the law. But Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And we talked a little bit about this passage last week. But the way the religious leaders at this time understood the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the Mosaic law and beyond, what they thought, what they believed was that if you could live out these commandments... If you can obey them, God will approve of you. He will accept you. And so these scribes and Pharisees, their entire life was dedicated to obeying the law. They studied it. They memorized it. 
They would even make new laws sometimes to protect themselves from accidentally breaking the laws of God. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say, I don't know if you guys can see, but there's a rug right here. Let's say if in the Mosaic law, there was a a law that said you cannot step on this rug. You know what the Pharisees would do? They would say you cannot enter this room. See, they would build barriers around the law. Because and listen, we often we, we like to think the Pharisees were bad guys, but these were people that really wanted to please God. And so they said, you know what? God told us not to step on the rug. So you know what? I know myself. I might get close to it. I might trip and fall. But you're like, I'm afraid that I'm going to step on this rug. So you know what? Here's the new rule. Nobody can enter the auditorium. That's what they would do. Because they would build rules around. They would build laws around the law of God to keep them from breaking the law of God. And so what was 619 commands from Moses became thousands of commands by the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees. And here's where this got Jesus in trouble. In the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments, it says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. What is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is one day out of the week that, you are, that God's people are called to, to rest from work and worship God. It's a day to rest from doing and focus on being with God. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were philosophers, right? So they said, well, what is work? What exactly is work? So they, so they made a list of what qualifies as work. And I think, you know, one of them is that if you grab grain, then it's work because you're, you're farming. And so they, would, they ended up putting all these laws around the law. And so what in, they, they said, you know, they added to it and they said, here's what you can and you can't do so that you won't break the Sabbath. And what happened was that the heart of the command, the heart of God for the Sabbath was actually lost on them in the process. So here's what happened. Jesus comes on the scene and it's the Sabbath day. Jesus did this a lot, but it's Sabbath. Jesus rolls into a town and he heals someone who's sick on the Sabbath. The Pharisees and the scribes flip out. Jesus, I know you can heal, but you can't do it on Sunday, Jesus. It's the Sabbath. You're working. And Jesus is going, you don't get it. The point of the Sabbath was for people to be restored back to God. That's what I'm doing. But they missed the point. They made the Sabbath about not doing anything. But they missed the heart of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was about connecting to God. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing when he was Healing people. And in their meticulous attempt to obey the Sabbath, they miss the point. They miss the point. And Jesus even tells them in John chapter 5, 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But what you need to know is that they bear witness to me. He says, You're you're thinking of the Sabbath all wrong. I'm the Sabbath. And I've come to give rest to to those who need it. And they wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus was healing lepers on the Sabbath. And the problem with this view of the law, this idea of if I obey the law, then I'll earn God's acceptance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says the problem with this view is that it idolizes the law and therefore legalizes God. So in your attempt to earn God's acceptance, you make it all about obeying the law, but you will actually miss God in the process. And the law will in the end become God. Because what are you serving? Not God. You're serving the rules. 
And today we often see this play out. Maybe you grew up in a denomination or in a church with very strict religious rules. Perhaps you grew up in a denomination or a church like that where it was so strict and you felt and what was communicated to you that God's acceptance of you was based on how well you obeyed the rules. I remember going to church one time when I was in middle school. There were like four teenagers in the room in like a semicircle. One guy with an acoustic guitar and we're singing some happy clappy, you know, song with like hand motions. And like, I'm 14, like I don't care about this kind of stuff, right? And the, there's like four of us in the room and we're supposed to be singing the song. And in the middle of the song, one of the youth leaders stops. She says, everybody stop. And she looks at me and humiliates me in front of everybody. She says, Will, why weren't your eyes closed and why weren't you singing? And I was like, well, the song is kind of dumb. And, and I don't know, it's just weird when there's only four people in the room and you're singing. Like, it's just not cool, right? But not only was I humiliated in front of my friends, but I remember thinking as like a seventh or eighth grader, thinking if God is like this, I'm terrified of it. And what was taught to me as a middle schooler by, and listen to me, I think by a godly, well-meaning youth leader. I'm not throwing her under the bus. I think she truly wanted me to worship God. But what was taught to me was that I needed to be a good little Christian boy if I wanted God to be pleased with me. And here's the problem with that view of the rules, that view of the law. You'll never be sure if you've done enough. You'll never be sure if you've sung loud enough or meant it enough or been sincere enough. And you will actually live in fear of God and your obedience will be rooted in fear of him rather than love for him. You guys know who Jim Gaffigan is? Great comedian. One of the best. But, he, you know, he, he's a he's a committed Christian. Um, but he has a similar story of mine where he grew up in kind of a, a legalistic kind of uh, circumstances. But he says he was giving his story of his faith one time. And he said, I grew up with a God is watching you. So you better not make him mad mentality. He said, I felt guilty for feeling good. I felt guilty for feeling bad. And I felt guilty for feeling nothing. See, the problem with viewing the law as the means of acceptance before God is that you'll never know if you've done enough and you'll always be terrified of whether you measure up. And this type of, we call it legalism, this type of legalism, it can happen even outside of religion, can't it? It can happen in your workplace. It can happen in life and it, and it can be equally as devastating. Last week, a study by the World Economic Forum released a study on millennials, meaning my generation, and perfectionism. Rachel Chia, a journalist who was speaking of this study, she says, the study reveals that millennials are under immense pressure from always being sifted, sorted, ranked, and swiped. In exams, job performance, assessments, dating apps, or on social media, they feel compelled to curate a perfect life, and as a result, they are subject to depression, anxiety, anorexia, suicide, and other self-destructive behaviors at an alarming rate when compared to the general population. We got millennials in this room. You know what I mean. We live in the social media generation, and there's a temptation 
There's this reality that our whole lives are to be broadcast to the world via social media so that it can be liked and shared. And if we don't get enough likes, we fall into some kind of, we feel worthless. And we've been told that the number of likes, the number of followers, the number of shares that you have is equal to your worth as a human. And it has caused massive mental and emotional side effects on our generation. And I can't even imagine what it's doing to the generation below us. That's legalism. That's a new law. And I'm a millennial and I know this all too well, that the pressure to be perfect can be exhausting and it can be crushing. And I'll be honest, I deleted Facebook and Twitter about three months ago. I've never felt more free in my life. Never felt more. I'm still working on Instagram. You got to see how cute my kids are, but I'm still working on it. But the Pharisees and the scribes, our culture demands perfect lives. And the Pharisees and the scribes demanded religious perfection from the people, from, from people. And Jesus says it was like slavery for them. But Jesus says there's grace for the crush. There's grace for those who've been brokenhearted by religious moralism. Remember, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's error number one, using the law to attain God's acceptance. That's the way of the Pharisees, the religious legalists, and I believe the way of modern culture. Performance first, then acceptance. But then there's another error that goes like this. Well, because of God's grace, the law is unnecessary. This is the error that the senior adult in my previous church was afraid of. If you preach grace like that, people are just going to live however they want. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees were afraid of. Jesus, chill. If you teach that grace is like that, people are going to abuse it. I remember one evening in college, one of my friends had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And all of my friend group, we were all shook up about it. And I remember that same night sitting in the back of a pickup truck with one of my friends. And we were talking about death and heaven and hell and all of that. And he was asking me about my faith. And he was asking about Christianity. And he said, Will, I don't think God could ever forgive me for all I've done. I said, yes, he can. And yes, he will. And he said, Will, I've done some things. I said, man, I know you. We're in the same fraternity. Like, I know what you've done. He said, no, you don't understand. If there's a heaven, God would never let me into it. I said, man, what you need to understand is that heaven is not a place for good people. Heaven is not a place for those who follow the rules. Heaven is a place for those who realize that they were never good enough to enter God's presence on their own, but that they trusted in Jesus to get them in. And I told him a story of the man who hung next to Jesus on the cross. A life of crime and a life of sin. Convicted criminal, sentenced to death. He deserved execution according to the law. Jesus didn't. He was hanging next to Jesus and he turned to Jesus and he says, you know, he's probably, I mean, he's nail pierced hands. There's blood all over him. I mean, he's been pierced and he's been beaten and he's been, he's tired and exhausted. He knows he only has probably moments to live and he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, when you get to heaven, will you put in a good word for me with your father? And Jesus looks at him. He's been beaten as well. And looks at him through blood-soaked eyes and he says, you bet. You know what he says to him? He says, later today, you'll be with me in paradise. Convicted criminal, life of sin, life of crime, trusts in Jesus with his final breaths and enters the kingdom of heaven. 
And my friend says, I mean, this is a guy that did not obey the law, right? And my friend says, that's great. So God can forgive all that I've done. I get that, but I'll just disappoint him again. I know myself. It's going to be hard for me to change. At what point does God give up on me is what he said to me. And I said, man, God's forgiveness is unlimited. You can never out his love for you. And he looked at me with a look in his eyes like he'd almost discovered a loophole. And he goes, so you're telling me that I can become a Christian today, still keep doing whatever I want, and still get to go to heaven. Here's what Jesus says. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what I think. I believe God's grace is so big that those who trust in him for their salvation, even if they never obey again, they still have a spot in the kingdom. This is what Jesus says. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they'll get into the kingdom of heaven, but they'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And you will forfeit the life that he wants for you. And so to my friend, my answer would be maybe. Can you accept Christ and then live however you want? Maybe. But is that what you're shooting for? Least in the kingdom? And on the other hand, I might even argue that if you're looking for a loophole to try to avoid the commands of Jesus, I would wonder, have you really ever embraced him in the first place? Do you really understand the depth of what he's done for you? So that's error number two. Because God is is gracious, I don't need the law anymore. I can live however I want. Here's the kingdom ethics of Jesus. Because I am in Christ, I now desire to obey Christ. Because I'm in Christ, I now have the power to obey Christ. There are two errors how Jesus understood the law. And two errors that we just presented. But the question now is, how does Jesus understand the law and its place in the Christian life? Listen to what he tells these disciples. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whatever happened to gracious Jesus? Because that doesn't sound gracious at all, does it? Remember, at this point, Jesus has healed the sick. He's called fishermen and tax collectors to be his disciples. The people listening to this sermon that Jesus is preaching, this is a bunch of ragtag men and women. And they're feeling good about themselves. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And they're feeling, they're feeling encouraged. And then all of a sudden he says these words and it would have been like dropping a bomb on them. He says, if you're not more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And when we think of the scribes and Pharisees, once again, we think of them like villains. But to these people, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most educated, most respected religious leaders in the community. And so for Jesus to say, you've got, you don't have to be, it's not, you got to be as righteous as them. He says, you've got to be more righteous than them. That would be like Jesus coming in here today and saying, hey, look, if you guys want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be better than Mother Teresa. You got to be better than Billy Graham. And Tim Keller, if you're not more righteous than them, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You're like, man, those are harsh words. Who can live up to that? Exactly. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. Is Jesus saying we have to be perfect? No. 
Jesus is saying we can't obey the law fully. Therefore, to think that the law is the way that we can earn acceptance to God is foolish because you can't do it. What Jesus is talking about here now is obedience. He's taking obedience to the commands on a whole other level, not just a behavioral level. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees were about. But he's taking it to a heart level and he says the issue has nothing to do with your external behavior, but your heart is not right. And over the next several weeks, he's going to give six examples. You've heard it said. He's going to quote one of the Ten Commandments and he's going to say, but I say to you, and here's one of them. Here's the first one. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone that is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you see what Jesus does? I've had many conversations in my ministry uh, with people about faith. And I'll often ask just to kind of figure out where they're at. And I'll say, how do you know that God accepts you? How do you know that God loves you? And I've heard, if I've heard it said once, I've heard it said a hundred times. It, people will say, well, I've never murdered anybody. They're like, that's a good start, right? They're like, they're like I'm, I mean, I'm not OJ, you know? I'm like, that's great. But Jesus here actually says, yes, you have. We all have. You've never murdered someone, but the seed of murder is in your heart. You've been angry. You've been bitter. You've been vengeful. You've been envious. And what Jesus is saying is your external behavior may may have never caught up with what your heart feels on the inside, but your heart is just as wicked as the worst murder on murderer's row. Jesus isn't after our external behavior. He's after our hearts. And Jesus, I mean, the question that leaves us is we go, well, well, then what hope is there? If the law is impossible to obey, if Jesus is judging us based on our hearts, then what chance do we have? Remember last week, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. Jesus says where we have fallen short, he has won the victory. And the scriptures say that if we trust in him, his perfect life then becomes credited to us. The Apostle Paul, all throughout his letters, uses the language, we are in Christ. And I love this picture because it means that whatever Jesus accomplishes, we accomplish with him. And wherever Jesus goes, we go with him. I've got three kids but I don't think it's any excuse to not have seen this movie. How many of you guys have seen The Muppets? You guys have got to see this movie. The, new, the, the one with Jason C. So good, right? And you know in The Muppets, there's a character called The Muppet Man. Anybody know what The Muppet Man is? The Muppet Man is when all the Muppets get together and they get a big trench coat and they all stack on top of each other and they're on each other's shoulders and then they put the trench coat on. Fozzie Bear stands up at the front and he puts a fake mustache and a hat on and then he walks around and all the humans are so dumb they think that it's just like another human. That's the Muppet Man. It's all the Muppets in a trench coat with Fozzie Bear and a mustache. Analogies break down. It's not a perfect analogy. This is, what, this is similar to what it is to be hidden in Christ. We are hidden. He's like the trench coat. He covers us. And when the Father looks at us on judgment day, He doesn't see us. He doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see your heart. He doesn't see the the, the anger, the bitterness. He doesn't see the lust. He doesn't see, uh, the, I mean, He doesn't see your failure and your shame, but He looks at you and you're hidden in Christ. He sees Jesus. He says, come on in to the kingdom of heaven. 
See, our entrance into the kingdom of heaven never had anything to do with our ability to obey the law. It has always had everything to do with Jesus' obedience to the law. And if we in faith believe in him, Paul says we are in him. And now, therefore, we can walk right into the kingdom of heaven with confidence because we are in Christ. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, yet he, obeyed, he paid the law's penalty, the one that we deserved. He took our sins, our failures, our shame upon his shoulders. He was nailed to the cross. He went into the grave and rose three days later. He defeated our sin, our disobedience. He bears our imperfections and covers us with his perfection. The scriptures then say that he sends his Holy Spirit to us to give us new hearts Hearts that desire what is good and true and right. And because Christ fulfilled the law, it now no longer holds power over us. It's also no longer a crushing reminder of our failure, but it's also not something that we abandon because, hey, Jesus has paid for it. It's now something that we look at. We go, look at what Christ has done in me. Now I'm in Christ and Christ goes to fulfill the law. Now in him, I can obey him. He's made it possible for me to walk on the narrow road. It's now something with the power of God's spirit we obey because we trust that Jesus knows the way to abundant life. We don't have to trust in the law or our religious performance for God's acceptance of us. We obey the law because we believe that God's ways are better than our own. After all, Jesus says, if you obey the laws that I've given you, And how can you obey those through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, says you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't this what you want? Isn't this what you want? So when I read the Bible and we come across the commands of Jesus, things like flee sexual immorality or things like turn the other cheek when someone has said something to you or hurt you, Things like forgive your enemies. Things like be generous with your money. Things like be generous with your time. Things like show love to the foreigner. Things like show love to the poor. When we read those things, we think, man, I cannot do that. And they seem so hard. But what we must remember is that in Christ, we've already obeyed the law because he's already obeyed it. Wherever he goes, we go. And whatever he accomplishes, we accomplish. So when God the Father looks at us, he sees us as having obeyed his law perfectly. Now the call of the Christian life is to be what we've already been declared to be. Do you guys ever watch? uh, We are called to walk in the victory that has already been won for us. Um, I haven't watched one in a while. But do you guys watch the singing shows? They just kind of got boring after a while, didn't they? Um, But I think of American Idol. I think this is a good little word picture that will help you understand the the commands of Jesus and how we're supposed to live them out. If you remember in American Idol, it always starts out with the auditions, right? And people walk in front of the judges. There's Simon Cowell. He's mean and he's scary. And then there's Randy who would like jabber about. You're like, what is he talking about? And then like Paul Abdul, who's awesome. And uh, but they would stand before they'd be so nervous and you could see it. You remember how just nervous these, like go look at Carrie Underwood's audition video and she's like kind of nerdy and standing there. Like she's not what we see her as, but she's standing there and she's nervous and she's singing and she's tense. 
But they let her through and then she goes to Hollywood and then they get on the show and you see throughout the show that you've got producers and you've got costume designers and wardrobe and you've got all these people working on their look and their sound and the judges are saying, no, I don't like that. You should try this style or you should try this style. You should try this. And there would be those weeks where they would just look so uncomfortable, didn't they? Like they were singing some genre they didn't feel comfortable with and they just looked so uncomfortable. But then you would get to the finale. And then they would announce the winner and the competition would be over and the confetti would be falling. And they would always say to the person who had won, they would say, now sing your single that's going to go on the radio. And you see those same contestants that used to be so tense and so uncomfortable singing the same song they sang the night before, before voting. But in the finale, when the confetti is falling and they've already been declared victorious, they sing with passion and emotion and sometimes tears in their eyes. They're doing the same thing, but they're doing it out of a place of victory rather than out of a place of fear and judgment. This is how it is with Christ. We've been declared the victor because of Christ. The confetti is falling. Sin, sickness, Satan, death, the grave has been overcome. That sin pattern in your life that you just can't seem to shake, Jesus has defeated it. The confetti's falling. Now sing. We obey because we have already been declared victorious.